participants who are in the conversation condition also, after the fact, reported being more likely to talk to a fellow commuter the following day. It was so enjoyable. I think I'll do this again tomorrow. To be fair, the people in the solitude condition also said that. They were probably <laughs> extra lonely. Once they were told they couldn't talk to anybody, they were like, oh, I'll get you tomorrow. Just wait till I make friends. Welcome to Attached, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all of that bad relationship advice using science. I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson out of the University of Tennessee. I'm Dr. Jacob Priest from the University of Iowa. I'm Dr. Sarah Woods at UT Southwestern. Today on this lovely episode, Jacob's going to bring us something fantastic in popping culture. Then in our academic deep dive segment, we're going to discuss the academic article Hello, stranger. Pleasant conversations are preceded by concerns about starting one. And then in good or bad advice, we'll be discussing advice from Twitter, Instagram, and you guessed it, the ticks and the top. TikTok, ladies and gentlemen. As always, if you have any advice you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. You can email us at attachedpodcast.gmail.com. Tweet us, Facebook us, get us on the Instagrams at Attached Podcast, or go to attachedpodcast.com and send us a message. Also, wherever you listen to this podcast, whether it is YouTube, Apple, Spotify, I'm sure there are other ones, Google something or other, please rate and review it and also subscribe to it. It really helps us out, believe it or not. But before we get to all of that wonderful what are you guys up to? This week I went to my first in-person conference, uh, like academic type of conference, Ooh. which was kind of weird, but kind of nice. But I realized something. This was the first time since Keenan was born and because of COVID that I have slept apart from either Keenan or Chelsea. Mm. And I slept terribly the whole time Aww. I was in Des Moines. And I was like, I should have brought a shirt for my partner to have in my room. <laughs> So I would have slept better throwback to some really interesting research Sarah Woods brought. But Des Moines was fun. It was kind of nice to have a little bit of change of pace this time of semester, even though there was two conferences going on. I was there for this education summit on emotional and behavioral health. And then they had like a community health provider, which is like MPH and like family medicine doctors. All of them were wearing masks. None of the educators were wearing masks. <laughs> I was like, okay, that seems wow. about right. That seems wow. about right. interesting. Yeah. Like, literally, there was 2,000 people at this conference. I would wear a mask in the halls when I wasn't presenting. That was, like, one of the very few. So, welcome to Iowa. Pandemic's over, ladies and gentlemen. Just kidding. Don't think I meant that seriously. <laughs> well, good. Look at you getting out there in the world, dipping yeah. your little toe in normal life. I don't know what that's like, but I applaud you for it. <laughs> You're welcome. You know, baby steps. Yeah. Thanks for trying it and re reporting back. You're welcome. Just bring the t-shirt. Next time, I'm going to steal one of those t-shirts and I'll sleep better. Jacob Priest, reporting from the real world. What's what's going on with you? I have been reading for fun lately. Look at oh, you. there it is. There it is. I, uh, I recently read a murder mystery. I really haven't read into murder mysteries the last few years, which doesn't really feel like it would be my genre of choice. 
um, if you know me otherwise, and you have heard sort of my proclivity for TV and film <laughs> on this podcast. Also, I really like those books a lot, and I decided it was important for me to build that back into my life because I read so much for work, and then I was not doing any of that in the after hours. So I built in reading for fun lately, and for you, then it started taking over most of my after work hours. And my <laughs> husband suggested, "Let's calibrate." Let's, <laughs> let's calibrate. <laughs> <laughs> Spend time with your child and husband, please. Hello, we'd like to eat. Are you ready to eat? Oh, just another chapter. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. It's important to experience those little joys. So over here in Tennessee, um, because we're back in the real world, you know, with the kids being in school, we're currently experiencing the second round of colds flying through the household <laughs> in oh. like a month period. So we have a lot of coughing, a lot of sneezing, a lot of my throat hurts, mommy. I guess we got a nice reprieve during the pandemic when we are isolated from everybody. And so we're reboosting those immune systems here in our household. But C'est la vie. It happens. And uh, one day I'll be able to sleep. I don't know when that day is going to come, but one day, surely I'll be able to sleep. First up, pop and culture. We learned about relationships from our friends and our family, but a lot of what we think about love and relationships come from what we see in pop culture. For this first segment, we like to take a moment to highlight events in pop culture that influence people's lives and how we view relationships. Jacob, what do you have for us? Have either of you seen the movie Vivo on Netflix? No, I've what's only it about? Seen part of it, only a small part, and then I decided it was maybe going to be too sad, and so did Charlotte, mm. so we turned it off. It was definitely too sad. Okay. Chelsea watched the last twelve minutes and was bawling. Oh my but gosh! It is so good. Oh so gosh. it's a new okay. animated cartoon, and the main character is voiced by Lin Manuel Miranda. Oh. Um, the premise of this movie is that. There's this little monkey named Vivo, and he, like, does street performances with this guy named Andres. And long time ago, Andres was in love with this woman voiced by Gloria Stefan. Also really cool. And, you know, she was going to become big and famous, and he felt like he couldn't leave Cuba, even though he was in love with her, and she was in love with him, but they didn't really say that to each other. So she leaves, and then, like, you know, 30 years later, she's going to do her last performance. And... He finally decides that he's going to go and tell her that he loves her oh. and that he's written this song to tell her that. And so the night before they're supposed to leave, Andreas, being an old 80-year-old man, passes away peacefully in sleep. And so it discombobulates Vivo and he doesn't know what to do, but he finally realizes he needs to go to Miami from Cuba and give Marta this song. Oh, her oh. name is Marta. I remembered. He's <laughs> good. <laughs> My aunt, my aunt is named Marta, and she lives in Miami. Oh. This is where I turned oh, it off. <laughs> Whatever you're about to say next is all new to me. <laughs> well, I won't give away all of the details. It's a lot of fun characters, really great music. Lin-Manuel, I think he helped write some music, and it's just great. And, you know, he's just amazing. So Vivo ends up becoming an unlikely family member to one of Andre's distant relatives, and it's really beautiful. But what I love watching this, and I don't think we think often enough in our relationships, is really the ripple effects or the downstream effects that connection can have in our lives. 
right? Like Andres and Marta separated for a long time, but the connection they had was still really impactful. So much so that they stayed connected, even though they didn't talk, even though they had different dreams and trajectories. And that's what's so beautiful at the end, because Vivo actually gets the music that Andres had written for her last performance and she's able to perform it. Like people come and go out of our lives sometimes, but those connections and the impact of those connections can last for years, for decades and across time and really have an impact even if you're not as connected to that person anymore. Oftentimes we only think about the important relationships as those that tend to be more permanent. But I think too that oftentimes there can be people who will parachute into our lives we'll have a close relationship with. And maybe our pathways will take us in different trajectories, but what we learn from that experience, what we learn from those relationships can really help us create new relationships, create meaningful relationships, and really kind of change the course of the river of our lives to extend the metaphor. Keenan's not a huge television watcher. He gets kind of distracted pretty easily. Yeah. But he literally sat in my lap the whole time, the first time ever. And we watched the whole movie together. It was a lot of fun. And then Chelsea came in in the last 12 minutes and just started bawling. But it's really good. You may have to make sure you're in a space where you want to cry a little bit when you watch it. But check out Vivo. It's really great. That sounds lovely. You are not in that space yet. It'll probably uh, need to be a little bit until I'm in that space. But it reminds me of a show called Last Tango in Halifax. Have you ever heard of that before? It's on Netflix, but I believe it's a BBC slash Channel 4 show. The later seasons get a little bit uh, maybe soap opera-y, but I mean, I've watched it all, so I don't know. But anyway, the first season, it's about that. It's about these two people who like knew each other and, you know, the equivalent of high school and... They had to separate for whatever reason and trying to find each other again through Facebook because they're older people and about how they reconnect as like 80 year old folks. And it's lovely. It's really, really lovely. Um, It reminds me of that, but without the tears. So. Now we're going to move to our academic deep dive segment and talk about a new paper titled, Hello, Stranger. Pleasant conversations are preceded by concerns about starting one. Recently published in the Journal of Experimental Psychology, General. It's written by Dr. Juliana Schroeder at UC Berkeley and Drs. Donald Lyons and Nicholas Epley at the University of Chicago. Hey, our old stompy ground, kind of. These authors explore why strangers in close proximity often ignore each other, even though connecting with other people makes us happier. Uh, Social anxiety. As the authors point out, humans are social beings and connection with other people increases our positive mood and well-being. So the authors suggest it's possible we ignore each other and keep to ourselves when around strangers because we underestimate how positive the experience of connecting with them could be. Prior experimental research has found that participants enjoyed talking with an opposite sex stranger as much as their own romantic partner. That's shocking. Um, And that (laughs) participants who were asked to talk to strangers 
often underestimated how much they would like their conversation partner as well as how much they would enjoy talking. A 2014 study with Chicago area commuters by the same researchers found that participants expected their commute would be, quote, less pleasant if they spoke to a stranger than if they were allowed to ride the train alone. However, when randomly assigned to talk to a stranger or not, they had a more positive train ride than their typical solitary commute. Mm, I like it. Though I don't know if that still motivates me to talk to a stranger, but we'll see what happens. But the authors point out research is not exactly clear about what people are getting wrong here. What about the social interaction do we misunderstand such that it gets in the way of our connecting with others? Sarah, we're not strangers whatsoever. I would definitely talk to you if I saw you in a room. So friend, I'm hoping you'll talk to us and let us know. How did these researchers test our expectations that chatting with strangers will be a miserable experience? So these researchers, as you mentioned, Patricia, did that 2014 study with Chicago commuters. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so this paper that we're talking about today that's new is a replication and extension of that project, meaning they used some of the same methods and sort of refined it a little bit. They recruited additional participants, a larger sample to see how uh, robust, how strong the effect was that they found in that 2014 study. And they looked at not just experience of the conversation with strangers, but also what they expected that experience would be like before they Mm. had it. Except for this time around, they didn't do this in Chicago. They used a new and, quote, perhaps more reserved sample of British participants. So these were London London commuters. Londoners. Uh, Was. Uh, So it's two different experiments. We're going to spend most of our energy focused on the first experiment just because that's sort of the main replication project here. The change from the original project, which we'll talk a little bit about, was they sort of varied the instructions a little bit. So for people who are invited to have a conversation with a stranger, they were in that condition. Rather than being told to try to make a connection with the other person, they were just asked to have a conversation with another commuter in case the language about trying to make a connection sort of boosted the positive effects of that. So So they recruited 466 train commuters from train platforms at four different London public transportation stations. And they did this in the morning and the evening. So going into and out of London, participants got a 10 pound Starbucks gift card. And (laughs) are you so proud of yourself for saying pound? (laughs) I couldn't find the symbol for it to put in my notes. So I had to write the word pound. Pound. (laughs) Uh, So 383 completed the full service. That participants were an average age of 39, 60% male. I mean, this is like a remarkable sample size. I cannot imagine if I am commuting to work, even being willing to like acknowledge somebody who wants me to participate in research or like even give me money. So I guess the $10 gift Starbucks did help a lot. And they're waiting there anyways, right? So um, I've done a few research studies where like I recruited people coming into and out of a library, for example, or coming into and out of like their waiting room for the doctors. It's very helpful when you look very friendly and also the people sort of waiting there are spending minutes that they don't necessarily otherwise want to be spending. So you look like a good alternative. (laughs) Do I have the project for you? And so they recruited participants when the next train was at least seven minutes out from arrival Uh, so that their recruitment conversation wouldn't be interrupted by incoming trains, which I included in detail just because I really, really like it. And then they had a five-minute online survey before their commute and after the commute. 
So the commuters were randomly assigned to three conditions and they got a little card to explain their condition. They were either in a conversation condition, which is they were asked to try to strike up a conversation with a fellow commuter once they got on their train. They could talk to anyone about anything they wished. They could talk for as long as they wanted to whomever they wanted. Uh, And essentially they were told, try in whatever time you have to get to know this person a little bit and let them get to know you a little. The goal is to have a conversation. The second condition is solitude condition. The condition I myself would hope to be randomized to, despite having read this paper. Uh, Please do not engage in conversation, they were told. Take this time to sit alone with your thoughts. And then the control condition, they um, were asked to do whatever they normally do. Talk, write, read, sleep, whatever they normally do. At this point of the study, 5.6% of commuters dropped out, (laughs) realizing it's not just maybe a simple survey. Um, And there are slightly more participants who were assigned to the conversation condition who were like, "Mm, not for me, peace. Yeah. Uh, But that's not a huge dropout. Um, So Mm -hmm. they completed the initial survey while they were at the train station and they were asked questions like what do you normally do during your commute and they were able to sort of report on those activities and then expectations about their commute so remember they already know which condition they're going to be in so what do they expect is going to be the case for them once they get on this train how happy do you think you'll feel after your commute today compared to normal etc they also completed a scale about extroversion so questions like whether they see themselves as someone who's really talkative and then they boarded their train so there was a post commute survey too that's when they reported on their actual commuting behavior did i read did i work did i talk to somebody so then they could see if the people who were assigned to that conversation condition actually followed through yeah they rated their actual experience at the commute so those same questions how happy did i feel after my commute today compared to normal they also reported on the demographic information of the person they spoke to if they did or somebody who sat close by and then if they had a conversation they described it how long did it go what did you talk about how interesting was it what's interesting is they did look to see who followed through on the instructions they were given by far the vast majority did fewer in the conversation condition did they had about 78 percent of people in that condition actually ended up having conversation. But they explained when they looked at the results, the people who did not have a conversation, they weren't rejected by other people. They didn't try and people said, ugh, gross, get away. Gross, I don't know why I put in gross. It was. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would be so awful. I guess maybe that's people's fear. So I'll just, I guess, just leave that in there. Or your fear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, sure, sure, people's fear. You're right, people's fear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Or it was that they had trouble finding somebody or maybe they thought uh. people weren't interested. So what they found were that these London area train commuters, who they describe as, quote, do not have a reputation for being especially social. I have never been to London, but I feel like it's got to be like top five on my list now if the reputation holds, but I really appreciate it. And so the people who were in the conversation condition did report significantly more positive commute than the people in the solitude or control conditions. And the solitude and control weren't any different from each other, but it was much more positive commute if they talked to somebody else. And that was despite how extroverted they were, whether they matched demographics, to whoever they talk to, uh, despite how long their commute was, um, etc. Overall, though, what was interesting, even though they thought people would expect this to not be very positive or expect it to be less positive than it was, participants expected the conversation condition would be more positive commute than the solitude or control. Um, now they hypothesize that maybe it's because they envisioned sort of having successfully conversed with somebody and that that would be pleasurable. So we'll talk about that in a second. But participants did though underestimate how positively they would feel in the conversation condition compared to how positively they actually did feel. 
So even though overall they thought conversing with strangers would be better than being alone with your thoughts or allowed to sort of sleep or eat or whatever else it is that they usually do, um, it was not even as positive as it actually ended up being. They underestimated how positive it would be. Wow. The longer the conversation they had, the greater that misprediction. So the positivity of the conversation increased in how it exceeded expectations based on the longer they talked which is, I think, really cool because we're not only sort of underestimating how positive it would be, but the longer we get, I was say stuck in the conversation. <laughs> my bias. This is, not the, this is not the author's language. Uh, if you get stuck in it for longer, it turns out to be better. Liars. <laughs> uh, they expected to learn more in the conversation condition, and they did. Participants who are in the conversation condition also, after the fact, reported being more likely to talk to a fellow commuter the following day. It was so enjoyable. I think I'll do this again tomorrow. To be fair, the people the solitude condition also said that they were probably <laughs> extra lonely once they were told they couldn't talk to anybody they were like oh, i'll get you tomorrow just wait till i make friends so because they weren't exactly sure why they sort of found this finding that was contrary to what they hypothesized about expecting the conversation condition to be positive they have a second experiment where they tested what is it that is sort of they call the psychological barriers that make us reluctant mm. to connect with strangers is it a belief that starting the conversation will be unpleasant because others maybe maybe they don't want to talk to us yeah they'll get rejected we're gross yeah they'll think right, we're right. gross right. annoying or is it because the conversation itself is going to be unpleasant like ugh, once i get stuck in there it's going to be the worst that's my experience on airplanes like always um so why is in this ending why is this conversation still going is it so many personal problems all in one flight uh, so this is 148 commuters from the same four train stations completed surveys, and they had to read the same instructions as experiment one from these conditions they were randomly assigned, except they were either told that they were to envision trying to follow the experimental instructions or successfully following. So imagine trying to follow these instructions and having a conversation versus you've successfully had a conversation. Now, how would you feel? Mm, okay, um, okay. Yes. So participants did expect significantly more positive commute when they imagined having successfully followed the instructions and conversed with somebody else than when imagined having trying to follow the instructions. And it was more positive than solitude and control. There's an interesting variation here in terms of the more interested they were in talking and the more they perceived that others would be interested in talking, the more they expected that conversation to be positive. But on average, people only thought about 25% of their fellow commuters would be willing to talk. I think that feels like a high number, but this, again, <laughs> my bias. Uh, this research is suggesting otherwise, and I've got some real... Uh, work to do here. And <laughs> it was also less the case for people who reported talking to strangers often or if they were particularly extroverted. So if we uh, know that it typically goes well when we talk to strangers because mm -hmm. we do it a lot or we're really sort of across the board outgoing, then we expect it'll go well. In general, they say that we anticipate other people will be relatively disinterested in talking to us. We think we'll be more interested than they will be. That's not what I think. Uh, but I do think, despite sort of my own uh, experiences going into reading this, uh, it is a really nice study that um, highlights a sort of unique piece of how social we are, that even when we sort of seem like we're really unsocial, mm. in fact, we really enjoy connecting with other people, even when we don't know them and there's no promise of reconnecting with them. We avoid talking to other people because we think that they don't want to connect with us. 
so we underestimate how social other people are. And that really is sort of the self-fulfilling prophecy, right? When we think other people don't want to talk to us, we don't talk to them. Then we miss out on the positivity that we could have had. And right. also we miss out on the chance that we learn that people do want to talk to us and do want to connect. And so sort of an interesting argument, I think, for being brave and trying to create new relationships, even if they're brief. Are you going to take that advice, Sarah? I am talking about it as a research takeaway for our <laughs> listeners. Not for all of us necessarily. Uh, but I do think it's interesting. And I sort of found myself wanting to observe this for myself mm. going forward. I do talk to strangers all the time. For me, a lot of that happens within what my job responsibilities are. And so yeah. I was wondering, what does this yeah. look like outside my work? You do it in like a helping role with like right, an intent right. going in and you right. solving, sol- I was about to say solving solutions, solving problems. No, I do. Um, I double solve it. <laughs> I already solved it. I'm going to solve it again. <laughs> You're it's welcome. An, it's an evidence-based intervention twice. <laughs> yeah, I think Time's you're two. right. I think it definitely also is obviously flavoring my perception going yeah. in. It's also why I thought this would be a cool study to talk about for at least me personally. That yeah. I don't want to talk to people at the grocery store because I do it all day, every day. But right. also, might I be sort of wrong about that? Might that be a sort of low stakes, fairly positive, pleasant interaction that you know what I mean? Might sort of bolster how I feel and not be paid work. Yeah, I completely agree and it makes sense. The other thing that I also am curious about is if there are like gender differences here. Yeah, that's what I was going to bring up. They found no gender wow. differences. Oh, really? So they found on average females talked more often to other females. Uh, yeah, men that's what talked I, yeah. to females and males just as likely, but they did not find any gender interactions and they tested variations of that in both projects. I thought that was also really interesting that they were huh. non significant. Mm-hmm. Because I would also see how that would be another level sure. of preventing you know, me or other women from perhaps talking to strangers is just that fear of your own safety. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. Gender and power. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and they did find that females were more likely to seek out other females to speak to. That makes uh, sense. But they didn't find that the demographics of the person that they conversed with uh, affected how positive the conversation was. Okay. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So go... Talk to a stranger, but, you know, be safe about it. Be safe. This is, I don't think the takeaway was supposed to be stranger danger. Just no, sure. I know. But, like, I just love to throw that out there. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Well, you're just putting up more psychological barriers that I feel like their experiment, too, was trying to. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, guess I they know. they were trying to take down the barriers. They were trying to explore them. They're um, super cool researchers doing amazing work. But A hundred percent. Very, very cool research. Absolutely. But be safe out there, you guys. Absolutely. Finally time for good or bad advice where we talk about pervasive relationship advice in our culture. We hear relationship advice from our parents, family, and friends. We see advice about how to be in relationships and movies and TV shows. And we read endless advice spewed at us on social media, blogs, and numerous top 10 lists. You know the type. But a lot of it just isn't actually good for our relationships. This is the part of the show when we use science, mind you, to decide if the advice is good or bad. If you have seen or heard some advice that you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. 
Email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com. Get at us on the Twitter, the Instagram, the Facebook at Attached Podcast. Though, to be quite honest, we're not excellent at Facebook. Instagram and Twitter is really where we're at better. Uh, I mean, but that's okay because Facebook... Come on, you've been reading the Facebook papers. They're <laughs> terrible. They're AKA terrible. Meta. <laughs> anyway, back to the script. While you're at it, please rate and review and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app or YouTube and share it with your loved ones. We all know how our loved ones love new podcasts. So share it with them. Today, we're going to talk about a variety of advice on social media. Frankly, it is continuously remarkable how much amazing, outstanding advice is out there while simultaneously being a similar amount of just horrible, horrible stuff. Anyway, are you guys ready? Yes. Yes. Okay, first up is at activism and stuff on Instagram. A friendly reminder that you don't need to fully understand the nuances of gender identity to know that each individual person knows who they are better than you ever will. Good or bad advice? Jacob? Great advice. Nothing to add. I work with uh, trans and non-binary folks pretty frequently in my work, and they know themselves better than we are. I'm still mad that we have to write letters of support for those who want medical intervention because mm -hmm. why aren't we trusting trans folks to make their own decisions about their bodies? We should. So great advice at activism and other stuff. I love it. Woods. Yeah, agreed. I was a little nervous wherever you were going because your lead in was that there's so much bad advice out there. Um, <laughs> and also this is just really beautiful and important advice. Um, you can do your own learning on your own time. And that's really, really important to do. And also, you're not understanding something should not impact somebody else's ability yes. to be themselves and their <laughs> mental health. A hundred percent. So really great advice. Uh, triple thumbs up. But you didn't know we gave triple thumbs up. But we do here <laughs> on Attached. Oh, do now. <laughs> Staying on Instagram, moving a little bit. At Russell Brand. I don't know if you guys are familiar with him. Oh, Yeah. Talks about how to know you're in a right relationship or a friendship. He talks about his past relationships and what he's learned um, with some advice from Brene Brown. I believe we've talked about her before. Praised her sure. a little bit. I reckon is the most important thing about how to know if you're in a right relationship is how are you feeling and how are you behaving? Are you a person that you like in this relationship? When I find myself starting to be impatient or impolite or not loving, I have a little look at myself. And most of the time, it's something that I can resolve outside of the relationship with guides, mentors, advisors, friends. If I feel that the person that I'm with is not behaving appropriately in some way, then I can discuss it. Make no mistake, the primary support emotionally and otherwise in my life is my partner. But I don't expect her to be responsible for everything. I have support set up in lots of areas of my life because of the nature of my past. I've had to address mental health issues pretty seriously. And I think in some ways I'm very fortunate because I know there's a lot of you that struggle along without ever having been hospitalized as a result of your mental health or having to be institutionalized as, a, you, know, you know, for example, rehabilitation and treatment centers. Kind of two pieces there, the first bit about relationships and the, the second bit going into his own mental health uh, history, which of course they're related, uh, but thoughts, good or bad advice. I really like the piece of advice where he says, my partner is a place of support, but not responsible for my mm -hmm. emotions. Thinking he probably learned that when he and Katy Perry got divorced because, you know, <laughs> he was the one that got away. Oh, she says that? In another life. 
I would be yeah. That's the song. Oh, I didn't that know she that. Sings. I don't actually know if it's for Russell Brand, but um, <laughs> so I I really appreciate that piece of it, and I really appreciate um, how he talks about his own struggles with mental illness yeah. and being hospitalized because I think that needs to be more normalized, and we need to be more open about that. There was a part in the middle that I he meandered a bit and it got me a little worried, but I think he came back on track. So I'm gonna say overall good advice. Overall good advice from Jacob Woods. I also think it's good advice. I appreciate how um, introspective he is there and how um, vulnerable he is about his own experiences. It sounds like some really powerful learning about himself that he's done that I think it makes good sense to think about in relationships, paying attention to and getting attuned to how you feel when you're in that relationship whether your behavior shifts when you're in that relationship, having honest conversations when you're wondering how your partner is behaving. And he uses the word appropriate, which I'm not exactly sure what he means, but having open conversations about what your norms are in your relationship is super important. And I agree with Jacob that understanding that your partner can't be your sole support for all things and all needs really makes for a healthier relationship, right? That when you have multiple kinds of meaningful supports in your support network it can really bolster the health of your partnership thinking of it as a metaphor you know in your life or your mental health as a stool two people a stool with two legs cannot stand up you need that third support you need other people to help you and i know jacob would call that triangulation but it also takes a village to help us with our mental health to help us with our life so i think it's so critical to think of our lives um, that way and have that other person in there to help support. Triangles can be healthy. You have been a healthy triangle. All right. So these are healthy triangles that we're talking about here. The other thing that really kind of resonated with me, and it sounds like it resonated with you both as well, is doing self-reflection and realizing when there's something that's kind of going on in a relationship, recognizing when it's your own shit that you bring into the relationship, stuff that you've learned from your family of origin and figuring out, oh, this is me. This is not my partner or this is not something that's going on in the relationship. I need to work on this with my mentors, mm-hmm. advisors, whoever it is that we're talking about. And also reflecting and realizing, no, this is something in the relationship that's not working. Mm-hmm. That's not right. Because it's easy in relationships to get those two things confused, right? And it's easy to blame yourself when it's really the relationship and vice versa that blame the relationship when it's really something that you're bringing from family origins or past relationships. So teasing that stuff apart, it's hard work, but you got to do it. Russell Brand bringing the advice that we deem good. Moving on, keeping in the vein of stand-up comedians who we all know that I just adore. One of my favorite forms of entertainment is stand-up comedy. Here's a clip of Daniel Sloss in Jigsaw. Have you guys heard of Daniel Sloss? No. His stand-up special Jigsaw is on Netflix. Here is something posted by Sean P. Boyle on TikTok. It really is a portion of Daniel Sloss's Jigsaw. This stand-up special on Netflix, Daniel Sloss live shows Jigsaw, the last half hour of this changed my entire perspective on relationships and dating. You have to learn to love yourself before you can allow someone else to do it as well. I said, there's nothing wrong with being single. There's nothing wrong with being alone. There's nothing wrong with taking time for yourself to work out who you are before you go out there into the dating world. Because how can you offer who you are if you don't know who you are? There's nothing wrong with being selfish for a bit because you've got the rest of your life to be selfless. 
right? If you only love yourself at 20%, that means somebody can come along and love you 30%. And you're like, wow, that's so much. It's literally less than half. <laughs> Whereas if you love yourself 100%, that means the person who falls in love with you has to go above and beyond the call of duty to make you feel special. And that's something every single one of us deserves. So Daniel Sloss on relationships, good or bad advice? So there's a mixed bag in there for me. Okay. Um, I think some of the things he says in there, give me a little bit of pause. I think it can be good to not be in a romantic relationship. I think that's what he's talking about when he yeah. uses the word relationship specifically, you know, for a while, if you're really trying to figure things out and trying to lay the foundation for a good relationship, but also relationships can be place where you learn about yourself, right? Being single doesn't necessarily mean that's the only time you're going to learn about yourself. And I don't know what he really means by like, I only love myself 20% or 30% or you've got to love yourself a hundred percent. So somebody will have to go above and beyond. Like loving yourself like self-esteem, I think. is. Yeah, I think, you know, like this concept of like, I don't know any research that kind of measures like how much do you love yourself? Well, this person only loves themselves 20%. This person loves themselves 100%. I don't know if I would phrase it as loving yourself. I think I would phrase it as maybe learning about yourself, right? That it should just be seen as kind of like, oh, I'm at 100%. I'm ready to be in a relationship now. Your capacity to love is going to grow and change yourself, other people across time and across relationships. So I feel like, the expectation we have of like, all right, stay single, figure your shit out, and then get in a relationship doesn't always work for everyone. Sometimes you're going to go through multiple relationships and that's where you're going to learn about yourself. And if you can learn to do that in a healthy way, you can build relationships. You know, there's evidence to suggest that people who have actually experienced more relationships and more relationships breakups have more realistic views of relationships. So I don't necessarily think that the only time for growth can be when you are single or that you need to get to this mystic 100% level of loving yourself before you get in a relationship. I mm. feel like you can continue to learn about yourself in the context of multiple relationships. And then that's important. Overall, I like the sentiment. I think that he's trying to push against something kind of like, oh, I just jumped in and out of toxic relationships, which I think is good. The rest of it kind of goes on. He really talks about kind of societal pressures of being in relationships. Like yeah. in order to be considered a worthy person, you have to be in a relationship. So that's kind of the context of a lot of this. And, and then I it's okay to be single. Yeah, no, I think that's great to push back against, right? Like being single is great. Being single can be really healthy and fulfilling, and in some cases, more healthy and fulfilling than a long-term committed romantic relationship. Yeah. But again, you know, setting up this mythical idea of like, I'm going to get to a place where I love myself 100%. I don't think that that's a construct that I'm going to hook my wagon to. So good advice pushing against this narrative of get married and be in a relationship because that's what you're supposed to do. But I think too, it's okay to think about relationships of growth can occur in relationships and outside of relationships as well. So that sure. part. So uh, some parts, good advice, some parts, bad advice was. Yeah, I would agree with what I feel like I hear Jacob saying in terms of it is probably helpful to think about ourselves and what we need and our own personality and ourselves in relationships as probably more fluid than this suggests, meaning that we evolve over time. And so how we learn ourselves and who we are changes as we grow, as we age, uh, as we experience different things in life. Right. Um, so there's not sort of this, I think, static time point where we sort of 
know who we are and then we bring that whole person to all these future relationships. That idea that we can know ourselves and that that's sort of static in one time point, I think ignores how flexible and fluid and plastic people can be over time. I think everything he said is adorable. Is that an Irish accent that is basically... Scottish. Scottish. Oh my God. So I apologize for confusing the two. And also he could say anything and I feel like I would believe him. So that's good advice. <laughs> uh, all wrapped up in an accent is hundred percent good advice for me. And I do think the piece about when we come to relationships, sort of having low um, experiences of not having had a lot of love and support, we can come to relationships expecting very little from our partner. Yeah. And I do think he's right about that in terms yeah. of um, it can skew then what we expect from a partnership, from a romantic relationship. Uh, but also I think other relationships too, co-workers, yep. friends, um, when we have had negative and especially traumatic experiences in our past, we bring those two new relationships too. And so talking through those expectations with new partners can be really helpful to develop those over time. I like it. Good advice with a couple of caveats. I love what you guys are saying because it leads beautifully into the next one, continuing with this theme of expectations. Here is Coach Rochelle. Lindra. Coach coach like, Lindra. Sports, like sports coach or life coach? Oh, oh. life coach. Advice yeah. on setting expectations for life partners. When I tell people that I haven't been in a long-term relationship for a while, people say, oh my God, I don't know why you can't find a man. Find a man. Oh, I can find a man. I can find a man. I can find a boyfriend. I can find a cuddle buddy. I can find sex anywhere. What I'm talking about is a partner. We're getting older. Things get hard. Life is hard. I want the guy that's going to be a ride or die. I'm looking for the partner who's going to be there emotionally for me when my parents pass away. I'm looking for the guy that's going to go out and get two jobs while I lose my job and go into depression for a couple months. I want the man who's going to hold me while I hold my dog while the vet has to finally put him down. I'm looking for the guy who's a partner who's the best partner for me personally, that I get all his quirks and he gets all mine. Not that he's going to be perfect because I'm not perfect, but he's going to be perfect for me. So next time a woman says, yeah, looking for partnership, but I haven't found it yet. Don't ask her. Hmm, why can't you find a guy? <sighs> she can find a guy. All right. So what are bad advice? Um, bad advice. So first, like, Let's not poo-poo people that want different things out of a relationship, right? She's saying like, no, I don't want a cuddle buddy. I don't want a boyfriend. If people want those things, those aren't bad. So don't judge those people. Right. Second, like her expectation of what a partner is going to be there for her emotionally seems like she is just expecting that things are going to be really bad for her and that he's just going to provide for her all this emotional support. This poor woman. And your partner's going to have some rough times too. And they're going to have some times when they're not going to be able to be there for you in the way you want them to be. And that doesn't make them a bad partner. It makes them human. And also like, what was some of the other stuff she was saying in there? I don't know. Like hold me as my hold my dog while I put him down at the vet. I You don't want somebody want... to do that? Oh, or... I... Will you put one of your cats down? I want you actually to lead a first date with that. That's what I think she's <laughs> saying, actually. Yeah, like that's the thing too. My dog should die soon. Where are you going to be? <laughs> right? Like your cuddle buddy might actually end up being the person that is going to be the one that grows into that relationship, right? So I don't know while it's like, are you a man? Tell me if you're a man who can support me emotionally. If you're How not a man. Suddenly she's a what? Western cowboy. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, that's my man voice. When I think of John Wayne, John Wayne was from Iowa. Thank you. Um, when I think oh of... God. How did we bring Iowa into this conversation? <laughs> <laughs> it's evolved. So you're saying bad advice to set <laughs> expectations in relationships. Is that what you're saying? No, that is not what I'm saying. I'm saying the expectations that she's outlining are so linear and unsystemic, right? Relationships are dynamic. They grow, they change, they evolve over time. If you are just expecting your partner to be there in the exact way you want them to be, in the moment you want to be, how you want them to be, you are setting yourself up for failure, right? Nobody can do that all the time in the right way. And You don't want somebody that never does that, but you also want to create space where you can take care of some of the things you need to emotionally and you can also take care of them and they can take care of, I don't know, like this just dogmatic, this is what I needed a man, doesn't feel good to me. Okay. All right. Jacob is on team bad advice. Sarah? I am also on that team, though I didn't develop an accent in the process. <laughs> I'm wondering genuinely how often this happens that you say you're single and someone says, oh, why can't you find a man? Uh, first of all, it's incredibly um, heteronormative. So if yeah. you are talking to a woman who says, I'm single, you know, um, I guess it's good advice to not lead with, where's your guy? <laughs> Why yeah, yeah. find the males? I also just think I am really concerned about all of these negative, like really intense beliefs she has about the near future of her life. Sure, we tend to lose our parents. And if we have pets, they tend to die too. Um, and also uh, she has a really intense list of expectations. I was going to say demands. I think she's couching them as expectations. I think actually research would suggest we probably are not that clear about our expectations just in general. And it's definitely suggested we aren't that clear about expectations with our partner, though we should be. Mm. Um, I think in general, the relationship would suggest that we're not very picky when it comes to our partners, which we've talked a little bit about on this podcast before, that when we have things that we're hoping to sort of um, select in a mate, Uh, They're not all that different than what other people would want in a mate, and they don't necessarily align with who we end up with. We have a bias towards being in relationships, towards staying in those relationships, towards not ending those relationships. I think it's the researcher, Samantha Joel, who has a paper that's literally titled, um, We're Not That Choosy. Uh, because we are pro relationships. So, yeah. which is kind of what Daniel Sloss goes back to is that as a society, we're constantly told that, you know, we have to be in a relationship. And sometimes relationship. we do that at the detriment of quality relationships and ultimately our mental health if we're continuously in relationships that are poor quality. Yeah. I just get concerned that her advice is setting up expectations that would be challenging to meet, especially challenging to understand at the start of a relationship. Yeah. So, bad advice all around is what we're saying. And actually, a number of people on Twitter got quite upset as well um, for this. Uh, Here is her response. So I got lots of comments like this under the video I put up yesterday um, about what I expect in partnership and what true partnership is. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go back and watch it. And I love comments like this. I got so many comments about how I'm too picky. I'm too choosy. I have too high of standards. I have too high of expectations. And I take that as a compliment. Because I am picky. I am choosy. I do have high standards. They're not too high. How do I know they're not too high? Because that is what I give in a relationship. And you are never going to convince me that I have to expect less from a partner 
than what I am capable of giving. All those examples I gave are what I have given in a relationship, what I can give and what I will give in a relationship. I look at all the things I have to give in a partnership, and then I have expectation to find a true equal partner that can give the exact same. Good or bad advice? Oh, bad advice. I, bad advice um, that that's what she wants in a relationship. <laughs> bad advice that she wants someone who can give the same that she is willing to give? No, that's not necessarily bad advice. It's just, does she never have a bad day? Are you never going to let your partner have a bad day? Are we going to set these expectations so high? I don't want to call her picky. I don't want to call her those types of things. But I do think this narrative, you know, I think in the first video, she said, like, my ride or die. And I think that is so, again, there was that little Western coming out of me. Um, I think that is just so problematic. Esther Perel, when she talks about vows in relationships, she says, don't make promise, say things that you're going to strive to do and how you're going to make it up when you don't live up to that because we're all going to fall short of our, the expectations we have. And so for me, that's what I, I kind of think that, you know, if the expectation is so rigid and saying like, I'm going to be able to give this all the time, hundred mm. percent, nobody can do that. I'm sorry. Like, you know, if you're watching parents die, there's going to be times when your partner is really going to be there for you in ways that are meaningful. And there's going to be times when your partner is not going to be able to do that in the way you want them to in the moment. And that doesn't mean they're a bad partner or they're not your ride or die, or they're not all of those things. It's just let people be human and know that part of that is that they are sometimes not going to live up to your expectations. And that's okay. I also want to say that that doesn't mean on the other hand that like you should just have no expectations. And if you're never there for me, that's still okay because yeah. I don't need you. I don't think that's healthy either. But these extremes we're talking about really can set people up for never finding a good enough relationship or a good enough partner. Which I think uh, might you know, be okay because it sounds like she's very content being single and not interested at this juncture. If, you know, but she is billing herself as somebody who knows how to do this and will coach you into it too. Mm. And I don't know if this rigidity is mm. something that I would want to coach into people. So for me, it's bad advice. Bad advice. Okay. Woods? Um, it's sort of interesting that it seems like the first video, um, I mean, I'm new to TikTok and building brands, but it seems like she was making recommendations broadly for people generally, right? Like yeah. that this is actually what women broadly are looking for. They're looking for men that can sort of rise to these standards of partnership. The second video she's suggesting, I'm not picky because this is what I have done in relationships that then ended. So the first video was about recommendations for everybody. The second one, it was actually just what I want because this is also what I bring to a relationship. And also arguing that she's not picky. I think it's okay that if she's saying these are the standards I have for a relationship, that it's okay to be choosy about those for certain. Um, but I think the concern more is sort of giving recommendations broadly that we have to sort of know what these standards are and know what these expectations are before we get into a relationship. And then they have to sort of uh, rise to these occasions sort of consistently across the board. I don't envision that in her prior relationship, she held somebody while their dog was put to sleep and then her dog was going to be put to sleep and that partner was not there for her. So I'm not exactly sure what the advice is yeah. other than to have standards that you understand, expectations that you understand are important for you in a relationship 
relationship. Mm -hmm. And then talking about that with your partner and um, coming into some sort of understanding of what that looks like for your relationship. If that's the advice, that's good advice. I suspect her advice is maybe more about um, being provocative in brand building. Yeah. Um, And it comes off a little um, global. Global. Yeah. And, you know, in a one minute video, sometimes you have to be kind of provocative in order to get those uh, likes and those views and those shares and all of those things. So I think it's interesting how I like came at listening to this for the first time. So in a lot of the research that we've covered is often about like unequal partnerships in like particularly a lot of marriages right now and a lot of household chores or cognitive load or, or, or things like that. And one of the ways to fix that, that we've been saying is men step up, men step up, right? Cause it's usually the men in the research that we've been following is men step up. And I think another way to like fix that so that women can have better mental health and feel less stressed in these relationships and raising families and working at home. And then also doing all this stuff at home is to also say, before you get in the relationship, I have expectations that this is going to be equal. So before you actually get into the partnership, I see her as saying that it is true. Her expectations are quite high, but she's saying they need to be equal. What I can give in a relationship, you need to also give. And if you can't do that, I'm not going to dedicate my life with you. I'm not going to live this life with you. Now, did the pendulum of that narrative swing a little too far? Yes. It's an overcorrection. There's a tendency for me to relate more to that overcorrection because I understand the not trying to correct at all is continuing in this society mm-hmm. where women are consistently overburdened and stressed out and it's not sustainable. Sure. I also don't think that her expectations in that first video were necessarily too high. They were stated more as ultimatums, meaning I don't think it's Aggressive, too high of an yeah. expectation that your partner be supportive when your parents die. I think that sounds like a basic need in a relationship. And so are we elevating our expectations or are we just um, uh, talking about them in a way that I'm just not sure what it's information, advice that's based in science, but Mm. let alone sort of teaching anybody how to approach relationships in a way that's healthier, if that makes sense. And I got a very traditional vibe from the examples she used, meaning ones that wouldn't necessarily promote equity or equality in a relationship, right? That she is, especially in that first video, is going to need this emotional support and her partner, presumably a man, is going to step up by doing more work, right? And let her be depressed for a few months or, right? Like, so it is kind of saying like, I have this role to support you emotionally in crisis, but on these other, you know, like, I think there's more to it on the day-to-day. If we're talking about equity and equality, you know, I don't know if what she was promoting there was actually pushing towards that. I think it was more about potentially more traditional gender roles. So I don't know. Regardless, her provocative message has provoked our conversation for sure. Indeed. So she succeeds. Good or bad advice works. You know, the other part I just worry about is like, these coaches set themselves up to be gurus. I just feel like the red flag is going to be when somebody is saying this is how it is without any nuance is always problematic to me. And maybe that's my Mormon upbringing. (laughs) But, you know, like if somebody can't actually understand the nuance of the situation. like It's like absolute, it's like black and whites to you. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess I'm more right now, like 
women raise your expectations. Like you don't no, need I've, somebody. You don't have to have a relationship. Wait for someone to meet you where you're at because you are pulling sure. all of the weight in this world for someone to meet you where you're at is where I'm at. So that's why I'm like, mm, I like it. But I like that we heard it through. It sounds like three different personal lenses. I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. hundred percent. Well, you know, we all read different research sometimes and think about things differently and yeah. Gender equality. There's tons of research around that. That um, Samantha Joel paper, We're Not That Choosy. It's like one of my favorite titles. I'm curious about what our listeners think. So if sure. you guys have an opinion or thoughts, uh, send it to us or respond on this Twitter handle. I'm really curious about how each of you heard her advice. Mm-hmm. Cause I feel like that's what the difference is, is how we're like hearing sure. the advice. So yeah, let us know what you think. Last, but certainly not least, uh, staying on TikTok as always, um, move to a couple who they are married. So these aren't single people giving advice. This is a married couple at Matt and Abby. Um, let's listen to how Abby responds to uh, the hard question from her husband. Do you like me right now? Do you like me right now? You know, I always loved you, right? Yeah. That doesn't mean <laughs> that I always like you. There's times where you know you're my lover. There's times yeah. where you're my buddy. There's times where you're my enemy. Your enemy? There's times. I'm your enemy sometimes. And right now, you're like a brother. What the heck? Wait, what? How am I your why would you ever relate me to your brother? I love you because you're family, but I just could use some space. All right. Good or bad advice from uh, Matt and Abby. I guess it's not um, like advice, but it's like maybe good or bad example of being in a relationship. Yeah, I was on the good advice train until she related him to her <laughs> brother and that got a little weird I, for me. I think that scared him too. But what I do like about this example, I think is... We sometimes imagine good romantic relationships to be conflict-free. And if your relationship is conflict-free, I actually think it's problematic. There needs to be times where there is tension and distance because working through that tension and distance is what can promote growth and change in a relationship. So it is totally okay not to like your partner at certain times. If that's the baseline, that's probably problematic. But if there's like, I'm committed to you, but I am just really upset and I need some space from you right now. And then when we're ready, we'll come and we'll work through this and we'll talk about it and we'll learn from it and grow. To me, that's a healthy relationship. So good advice. It just makes me feel weird. Like if you're like my brother right now, I get what she was saying. Like, I love you. You're just bugging me and I want some space from you. You're part of my family, but I just don't like that context. So other than that, I say good advice. Good advice. All right, Woods. I also think it could be construed as good advice. We have the capacity to love the people we're with and also be frustrated with them and also need space and also have conflict. And I think healthy relationships maintain that safety and security and connection. The healthiest relationships do that, right? Even when we need some distance or we need some alone time, or I disagree with you, or I'm angry with you, the anger uh, isn't threatening to the core stability of the 
the relationship. We can stay together because um, we love each other and we have commitment and loyalty and safety and security. And also I don't need to spend every evening of this entire month with you, right? We can- You can read a a mystery novel if you want to. I can disappear for days in that mystery (laughs) murder mystery and it'll be fine. (laughs) And it'll be fine. yeah, good advice all around. I also remember some of Gottman's research that said, and assuming that they're in kind of like a low-key fight right now, right, this couple, because she was clearly just a little bit irritated. Mm-hmm. Um, but Gottman said, you know, like Jacob was alluding to, all couples fight, right? But the people in healthy relationships kind of have those arguments, but like can keep a smile on their face or like, you know, they're having a conflict, but it's not like name calling. It's not screaming and yelling. It's just like a disagreement. And she was showing that she kind of had a smile on her face at some points and was like, okay, but she wasn't like calling him names. Right. Mm -hmm. So she was having that healthy, playful argument. And that's what, when Jacob or Sarah or I talk about like healthy conflict, I think that's a good potential um, version of a healthy conflict. And, and obviously conflict gets more heated than that. But I think that was a good version of that or an example potentially of that. So as always, thank you for listening to Attached. Remember to call us, email us, or get at us on the social medias about relationship advice you've received and you're wondering whether to follow or pass on. We cannot wait to talk about it. 